0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
1: Maybe it's because I'm over 65 now, but I do seem to be having a lot of guests on the show who are researching aging in the workforce. If you heard my earlier conversations with Mark Friedman of Encore and Paul Rupert, and even if you haven't, I hope and expect you're going to get a lot from this episode with Chip Conley. Chip at age 26, founded Joie de Vive Hospitality, transforming an inner-city motel into the second-largest boutique hotel brand in America. After running his own company as CEO for 24 years, he sold it and went on to help the founders of Airbnb transform their startup into what is now the world's leading hospitality brand. Chip served as Airbnb's Head of Global Hospitality and Strategy for four years and today acts as the company's strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership. Chip is a recipient of hospitality's highest honor, the Pioneer Award, and he holds a BA and MBA from Stanford University and an honorary doctorate in psychology from Saybrook University. He serves on the boards of the Burning Man Project, and the Esselin Institute, where the Conley Library bears his name. He recently launched the Modern Elder Academy, which we talk about in this episode. We also talk about the future of work, wherein so many in midlife will be reporting to those younger than themselves. We review the many ways organizations can capitalize on the loyalty as well as the wisdom of the mature employee. We talk about how intergenerational mutual learning, well, it's beneficial not just for both the individuals involved, but also for the company. Chip enumerates the ways a modern elder can add value, not merely by dint of loyalty, company loyalty, and the capacity to mentor younger people, but also because they've accrued not just experience, but emotional intelligence and wisdom. Not so much factual information as hard-won knowledge about how to make the process of working together work. That stuff's invaluable. So now, get set to listen to and learn from the wisdom of a modern elder, Chip Conley. Chip Conley, so great to welcome you to Work and Life it's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the renowned psychologist Eric Erickson wrote decades and decades ago about life stages, and the next to last one is what he calls generativity, mentoring, giving to the next generation, sharing your knowledge to help others grow. These are examples of being or remaining generative versus stagnating, and you are clearly doing that with what one might call your second, I don't know, third career. Uh, Mark Friedman, a recent guest on the show, calls this an encore. Uh, after leaving the hospitality industry and focusing on the wisdom that elders can bring, wisdom that you glean from your own experience, but also from your research, can you describe your experience at Airbnb where you were an elder and indeed working for people half your age?
0: Sure, Um uh, well first of all it's fascinating I, there's a statistic that i just saw this week that sh- said that uh over half of us will have a boss younger than us uh by the year 2025 currently it's about almost 40 percent so uh it's it's a new phenomenon, uh
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um it's one that we'll see when, uh, more and more as we have five generations in the workplace
2: mm-hmm. in my
0: case I was uh, approached by Brian Chesky, um, the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb, who was 31 at the time he approached me six years ago. He said he was looking for an in-house mentor. The company was a small tech startup. Airbnb was,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and had not one person in the in the company who had a travel industry or hospitality background. Hmm. Um, so he wanted me to come in and be the head of global hospitality and strategy, while also sort of being his in-house mentor. Um, It all sounded good, but I was twice the age of the average employee, as you said. Um, I was a lot younger, a lot older than Brian, who Mm -hmm. I'd be reporting to, but also mentoring. And most importantly, I'd never been in a tech company before. And so at age 52, I was joining a, a tech company for the first time.
1: So how'd they get to you? How did Brian find you?
0: Well, actually, what was interesting is, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, as is Airbnb, um, I was, I'm pretty well-known in this area because we were the largest uh, independent hotelier in California, mm-hmm. Joie de Bide, my company was, and before I sold it. And um, so there was a familiarity with our boutique hotels. We'd created 52 of them. And so that was the starting point. But I'd also read a book I'd written a few years ago called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And mm-hmm. they really liked the premise of the book. And they wanted to see how they, we, they could implant, um, implement uh, the peak model within Airbnb, as well as, you know, help become turn themselves from being just a tech company into uh, a hospitality brand. And, Let me just
1: uh, interject here. Yeah. Abraham sure. Maslow, to whom you refer and to whom you are indebted, I know, uh, wrote about the psychology of peak experiences. And that's part of the inspiration for that work that you've done, right?
0: Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it was, it's also sort of the idea of um, a hierarchy of needs. There's an employee hierarchy of needs. There's a customer hierarchy of needs. There's even a, an investor hierarchy of needs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So in my time with the founders, um, I started to help implement these ideas there. But what was, what was really strange is I hadn't, I didn't understand the language they were speaking. It wasn't <laughs> just millennial language. It, exactly. and occasionally, to it was more the tech language. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was uh, it sort of went over my head. So that's when I realized pretty quickly that I was not just the mentor, but I was also the intern. Um, I was <laughs> I was uh, learning tech for the first time at age 52, um, while also teaching hospitality and leadership, and you know sometimes even things like emotional intelligence.
1: So you called yourself a mentor. Correct.
0: Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: a unique, you know, it's funny, fascinating, fascinating com- com- combination. Oh, no, no, please.
0: Well, remember the movie uh, with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway called The Intern? So uh, Anne Hathaway, as the young CEO, didn't really want Robert De Niro to be her her intern, her seventy year old intern, because he was a little too observant. But um, she ultimately hired him. He was the intern who became the mentor for her. Mm -hmm. I was the mentor who became the intern. (laughs) (laughs) So the opposite direction, because uh, I came in as Brian's mentor, but because I didn't understand tech, I I also occasionally had to be the dumbest person in the room.
1: So how did that feel for you as someone who'd been so successful in creating uh, a a real powerhouse uh, company in the industry to... To be among people younger than you who knew a lot more about some, you know what was core to the business than you could ever know.
0: Well, I had to right size my ego
1: first mm.
2: and foremost, right.
0: And in writing my book, "Wisdom at Work: The Making of a Modern Elder," the first lesson I I offer in the book and that I suggest that someone in midlife needs to consider is how do you evolve your historical way of looking at yourself. And I needed to do that. I had been you know, running a company that I grew from mm-hmm. one person to 3,500 people. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm in a company that had 300 people, and I'm not the boss. Um, but I am the person who's going to help the boss become successful. You mentioned Eric Erickson. One of his best quotes of all time was, uh, I am what survives me.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's really about legacy. And so my legacy, I knew, was going to be whether Brian became a great CEO or not, and um, mm-hmm. proud to say, six years later, uh, he's uh, he lasted longer than the, the, the Uber CEO, um, and and he really proved that he was um, he was somebody who wanted to learn as well. So Brian and I both had a growth mindset to try mm-hmm. to learn as much as we could.
1: What was the hardest part of that for you, though, that transition to be right sizing your ego, as you said, and to
0: well, I and, and think, to evolve. You know, just, <laughs> One of the things that happens as we get older is we sort of expect that we're supposed to be an expert all the time, especially if we've been successful maybe. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea that I could be as curious as I was wise uh, and occasionally be the beginner's mind while other times being sort of the teacher um, was required me to um, accept that you know I had multiple identities. and mm-hmm. I also had to get rid of a lot of my historical knowledge of the hospitality industry um, as one of my director puts uh-huh. said, Chip, your fact knowledge isn't all that important. It doesn't really matter at Airbnb how many, ma- how many rooms are made cleans in an eight-hour shift. That's for the hotel industry, but Airbnb is a hmm. whole different form of hospitality.
1: Right. That was but irrelevant, it, that kind of it knowledge. was. But
0: she then said also right after it, she said "But your process knowledge is really valuable.
1: What did she and mean said, by what that? Do
0: you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And she said, you know how to get things done. You, you, you've worked in an organizational structure before and you understand the underlying motivations of everybody at the table as well as the people in the organization who need to buy into this. So you actually understand the roadmap to get things done, understanding the psychology of people. And you know what? As she said that, I was like, wow, that's a pretty good analysis of why I guess I've been successful here. Hmm. Often it was just understanding people.
1: So you had the benefit, though, of people surrounding you at Airbnb who were telling you, as in this example, what you were bringing to the table, what you were good at, where your value was was going to be, and also where it wasn't. Yes. That must have been really but, important in your evolution to right-sizing just, your ego. Was it?
0: Yes. It was certainly... Um, I think the idea that I could be the dumbest person in the room was a strange concept at first. It was like, wow, that felt awkward. I, I, it's been since my teen years that I felt that way. But when I shifted it such that instead of being dumb, I was just curious. Mm-hmm. And instead of being the person with the answers, I was the person with the questions. It shifted me in a way that, um, you know, Airbnb has a lot of very smart people young people in it, um, all of whom want to be, or not all, but many of whom want to be the smartest person in the room. Mm. Uh, My goal was to be the wisest person in the room, and often being wise meant asking a really interesting question that came from, sort of, that helped to show the blind spot of the company. Mm. And what what I mean by that is, uh, when it came to the hospitality industry, I have my blind spots because I'm just used to the way I've operated. Right. But these young people had some blind spots when it came to their technology and how our hosts and our guests were going to use the technology. And so often I would, using a method of asking questions called appreciative inquiry,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, I, would use, I would offer questions that um, were illuminating and helped to occasionally show us that we had some blind spots. And that's when I realized, my gosh, there's a real value in being the most curious person in the room not just the smartest
1: and, well especially when you don't have the the quote as you said uh, fact knowledge uh, and mm-hmm. that really what you were bringing was uh, was was an interest in trying to understand the aspects of this business that you didn't understand but that you had smart right. questions about so how did that role like how did that get shaped for you it couldn't have happened just right off the bat so smoothly i'm i'm sure that there were some some lessons in how to bring that that uh that curiosity which really opened their conversation to to well, well, new ways of solving problems
0: one of the things i i learned was there, there are certain questions you don't ask um that are just almost like you know um dictionary questions like Tell me, what does it mean to ship a product uh, or ship a feature? So okay. I would—I uh, had a, a woman who worked with me who was she—I was fifty-two, she was twenty-seven, and she sat next to me in meetings. She was almost like my tech translator. So I would write down a word, and she would—you know—she she and I we keep we keep track of the six or seven words in the meeting that I didn't understand. <laughs> and after the meeting, we'd sit and she would mentor me. I actually think the future of work is all about mutual mentorship. Yes. wisdom moves in both
2: directions. Mm-hmm.
0: So Laura would actually tell me a little bit about um, each of these words. So I, it didn't make sense to ask everybody in the uh, uh, twelve people in a room, "What does it mean to ship a feature?" But what you know, so I would make sure that those kind of questions weren't the kind of questions I was asking. On the other hand, I would occasionally ask her after the meeting, "Well, why is it that you know, for example, we our hosts and our guests both review each other in the hotel business? We would never." Review our guests in a public way, and that's when I started to learn a little bit more about home sharing. but then I realized there were some some flaws in the review system this is back in two thousand and thirteen
2: mm-hmm.
0: that that were not obvious within the company, but they're obvious to me I guess and that's when I started posing questions like that in a public way in meetings so it was really learning mm-hmm. what were the things I would ask privately because I didn't want to slow down the meeting mm-hmm. what were the things I asked publicly in a meeting that actually helped to create a, a, a really you know a zesty conversation and whenever I needed to mentor someone I would do that privately so I learned how to intern publicly and mentor privately
1: so <clears throat> you had you had help that's that's one of the themes that's resounding quite clearly to me is is that you could not have made this 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 transition into this role uh, without the support of uh, people around you who were mm-hmm. who were wanting you to be successful in this new kind of role.
0: No doubt about it. Um, I, you know, I, I really appreciated the fact that uh, quickly I learned that mutual mentorship was what my what was going to make me successful or not. Um, we're familiar with mentorship, which is often <clears throat> from old to young sort of an apprentice program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we're familiar with reverse mentorship, which Jack Walsh popularized at General Electric mm-hmm. 20 years ago when he wanted his senior executives to learn the Internet and, and technology better. And the younger employees at GE helped um, helped with that. But mutual mentorship is a relatively new thing, and it's something that we've really tried to, to make popular at Airbnb and I, I, I'm seeing it more popular in some other technology companies as well. And what it really means is that with someone that you build a relationship with in the company, um, each of you has a specialty or a knowledge in a particular area, and it's it's a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. You learn from each other, and um, that's really what I did with Laura. Laura's background, she was a 27-year-old who had worked for four years at Google, a year and a half at, at Airbnb, but she'd never been trained in leadership or management. Mm-hmm. So her approach to leadership was very technocratic. It was very metric-driven And she didn't read people. I mean, she was great, but she didn't read people or understand how to develop a almost a noble, you know, north star for where we're going and getting everybody to rally around that. Mm -hmm. So a lot, I didn't, I wasn't hired by Airbnb to come and sort of teach emotional intelligence. But emotional intelligence is something that we grow as we age. We get better at pattern recognition of ourselves and others, understanding the patterns of how humans interact. And so I think at the end of the day, that's what the opportunity is in the future is how do we create, with, especially with these young technology companies, an environment where the brilliant technologists have some modern elders by their side who help to understand organizational process, mm-hmm. emotional intelligence, and leadership skills.
1: Well, and it's not just in tech companies where this kind of model is going to be making more and more sense as the demography of our of our workforce shifts in the ways that we, we've been describing. Before we get into uh, the, the making of a modern elder uh, in, in terms of what, what that looks like and, and what advice you have for, for people who are looking to develop into that kind of role or who are in a, in a business where they need people to adopt that kind of role – Tell us a little bit more about those four key lessons that you learned and that you write about so so vividly in Wisdom at Work. The first was to evolve to right size your ego. What were the other key elements of your sure. learning?
0: Let me, let me say, if you don't do the first ones, Stu, it, the other three might not work because a lot mm. of times someone in uh, midlife or older sort of feels like they're the preacher and they they want, they, they want a congregation who's just going to sit down and listen to them, and and that's really sort of the the person who is expecting the old school approach, the hierarchy, you know, the older you are, the more people need to revere you. And that's really just not the era we live in. So this evolving first step means that you need to shed what's no longer relevant. Hmm. Uh, the second uh, lesson is to learn. And again, that's sort of going from, you know, instead of teaching, you're learning. And I needed to learn tech. And I, I promise you, I don't. If, you, if you're somebody out there who's 55 years old, 45 years old, 65 years old, and you think you've learned it all, and there's nothing left to learn, then it's time for you to leave the workforce. Mm-hmm. Because the workforce, you know, the world is changing so quickly. There's always new things to learn. So that kind of um, learning and curiosity almost lubricates the brain, and it also creates a bit of a passionate engagement and a curiosity that makes. Frankly, when people meet you, they, if you're that curious, it, it takes about 10 or 15 years off your age in terms of how people, how old people think you are because they're not used to older people being so curious. So that's the second lesson. The mm. third lesson is collaborate. One of the things that's been proven in all kinds of studies is that um, uh, when you have an older person on a work team, it actually creates an invisible productivity, productivity for the team. Because often there's an emotional um, collaboration, there's an ability using emotional intelligence to create a more collaborative team because the older you get, the more you understand um, yourself and others.
1: Is it also because there's an element of uh, the elder feeling less competitive?
0: Yeah, I think the great points, too. I mean, I think one of the things that was really interesting for me, I was not competing for anybody's job. And therefore, people saw me as a confidant. Mm -hmm. They saw me as somebody who they could, you know, learn from. They also saw me as somebody that they didn't have to, like, try to diss me in a meeting to, like, make me look bad because somehow they were competing for a a position with someone else. So I was not exactly a peer. Um, So that helped. Um, so to be in important. a status
1: where you're not in active competition for the next promotion or the next, you know, status enhanced thing, uh, whatever it is that, that your organization provides, that really enables one to take up this elder, modern elder role, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, I would absolutely say that. And I think it's a whole new framework mm-hmm. to think about this because mm-hmm. we don't really have a history with this. We don't have a history of sort of older people working with younger people in a mutual mentorship kind of way on teams, unless you're sort of up in the stratosphere, a more senior executive. But again, if we know that by 2025, half, half or more of us will have a boss that's younger than us, hmm. this is sort of the future that we're starting to see played out. So that the fourth lesson is counsel. So evolve, number one. Two is learn. Three is collaborate, four is council. Now, for many, many modern elders, for many older people, they feel like you go to council first. But I believe that council happens once you've earned the other three. Mm-hmm. If you do the other three first, you're going to have, as I have had, over a hundred mentors at Airbnb over the last six years, because people flock to you because they, you know, people think, oh, millennials, they don't, they don't, they want to do it all themselves. No, 75% of millennials are looking for a mentor and get sure. a tiny fraction of them have one. Hmm. So people want counsel from people that they think are wise. Um, and so I think one of the things that's really important to know is that that's what happens later in the game. Um, which, and
1: which happens later in the game?
0: The counsel, the idea that hmm. people, mm-hmm. you know, I think you have to earn that, and once you earn it, you, you know, you, you'll you see people flocking to you. So long story short is I think that, that those are the four lessons. If you do those four take that sort of approach um, and that sort of that that flow chart of going from one to four um, you're likely to be someone that people want to have on their team and want to have in their company
1: and what what you're trying to do with with the book with Wisdom at Work in in terms of helping people especially those who were say at the midpoint in their careers or you know nearing you know uh, Coming over the hill, uh, and and seeing the you know the horizon coming closer, what what can you do to develop the capacity to be seen as someone who has wisdom that is of value in uh-huh. in your organization, uh, you know, no matter what that organization is, I, I think that's that's a question that a lot of people are going to be interested in, in hearing about, um, and uh, and how. In your organization, you can make it easy for people to um, to adopt that kind of role because you know the transition again. I, I could see how that would be difficult. It couldn't have happened overnight where you just right sized your ego so readily, right? I mean, that took some time. I assume
0: <laughs> it, it, it absolutely did. I, I you know I think that um, many of us grew up in an era where the elders had were revered or respected, so. There was reverence. And I think mm-hmm. that today it's all about relevance. So mm-hmm. I think a modern that's elder good. is about relevance, and a traditional elder was about reverence. And to be relevant and to, to take your emotional intelligence and maybe your timeless wisdom you've you've earned over time, you need to be able to adapt it to modern-day problems. And so that's the part mm-hmm. that I think is most interesting, is how to be relevant in midlife requires you to be a real student of how the world is changing, hmm. and so that's what I had to do. I had to take hospitality background that didn't really serve all that much uh, in a home sharing company. Mm-hmm. But um, so, I'd and I learned technology. Um, but I could apply. In fact, I think the biggest value I had was not because being a hospitality executive or entrepreneur. It was really? truly understanding leadership hmm. and, ha- and and understand, understanding organizational savvy. And when I say that, wow. that's not politics. It's more like how do you how do you get people motivated and inspired mm-hmm. to do great work,
1: and and to to align together to get something done with and through each other, and, and and those are lessons that that kind of transcend substantive uh, you know ex, areas of expertise.
0: And um, they're, they're, they're in essence the wisdom you you learn over time. And I think that's really one thing that people don't really value is. That, frankly, some of these things you you can't lead. As much as Wharton's a great business school or Stanford, where I went to, is a great business school, you don't learn these things and and really understand them intuitively until you're out operating in the world with them.
1: That's an interesting question that perhaps we can address when we come back on the other side. uh, Because I think you can set people on a path to asking the right questions and to have frames of reference for for thinking about what they need to do to, to grow into So, Chip, um, you have developed uh, a way of uh, helping people to cultivate their uh, capacity as modern elders, and it doesn't always involve growing a beard. I gather, correct?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, most most women probably wouldn't. Which that,
1: would be but, difficult uh, for some people. Yes, I know. Yes, um, yeah. but uh, I, I I love the quote here. Um, the Swedish proverb that you that I had never heard, but it's just so lovely. The afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Man, is that true? Uh, so how do you bring your wisdom into training people uh, to to uh, to increase their capacity to serve well as modern elders?
0: So, um, obviously, writing a book helped. Uh, wisdom that work the making of a modern elder. Uh, which came out at uh, the end of last year. Mm-hmm. But what I started to realize as I was writing the book is the, the the number of people who I know who are in midlife who are a bit bewildered and anxious by mm. how the workplace has changed is is staggeringly high. Uh, what we know is a few things. First of all, between 2008 and 2013, 25% of people in their 50s were laid off by, uh, from their job. So basically, 25% of the people in their 50s lost their job mm-hmm. uh, during that, that during the the aftermath of the Great Recession. Most of those people, not most, a, a good portion of those people, never found another job. So you know, in some cases, they might have had something, some wisdom to offer.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, obviously, the process of losing a job can actually sap your confidence. So I, I was aware of that, those statistics. But when I started to actually write the book. I was interviewing people. And what I heard was the following. Hmm. I'm going to live longer than my parents by 10 or 15 years. And yet power seems to be moving 10 or 15 years younger. And so we've created a modern irrelevancy gap for people in midlife. And that's, when I started to say, well, where do you go in midlife? And I define midlife as thirty five to seventy five quite broadly. I That's used to be just Extremely broad. Thirty
1: five? Thirty five is midlife. Well, the beginning
2: in of some it. Some
0: industries in, in ad, the advertising industry and in, in technology, etc., the the people start to feel irrelevant in their mid thirties. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most industries, not. But in those industries, yes. And certainly, I live in the Silicon Valley, and mm-hmm. so I, I certainly see it here. All right. And the reason I take it to seventy-five is if, if you're going to live till ninety-five or a hundred, many people are going to work uh, by choice or by necessity until the mid-seventies. Um, so, what I started to ask myself was, well, where do you go to repurpose yourself? Where do you go? to try to understand what's next for you and to navigate the, the challenges and transitions that happen in midlife. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's personal growth retreat centers, and there are you know, occupational counselors and, and coaches and things like that, but I was really looking for a place where people can sort of learn this together. And I didn't really find anything. There was nothing like a midlife wisdom school out there. So I decided to create the world's first midlife wisdom school, called it the Modern Elder Academy, Mm -hmm. And it um, opened it on a beta basis, so we were not publicly open, and had 153 people go through 13 week-long or two-week-long programs at a three-acre campus uh, in Baja, California, Sur, which is uh, in Mexico about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas um, on the Pacific Ocean. And that was last year, Mm -hmm. and I found, wow, people really need this. And so we opened to the public back in November, uh, and we were featured on the cover of the New York Times business section on Sunday about three or four weeks ago. And um, we've had people from 19 countries apply, and uh, each cohort is usually about mm, 14 to 18 people uh, from all over. And 50 to 60 percent of our students are – uh, people who are on scholarship, either a, a half scholarship or a full scholarship. Average age is 52.
1: Scholarship funded uh, by whom, may I ask?
0: By me. <laughs>
1: oh, wow. Okay. Yeah,
0: it's my way to give back. I was you know, lucky enough to get tapped on the shoulder at age 52 by mm-hmm. this little tech company that I had never heard of called Airbnb back then, and now now the company's 20 times larger than it was, so I mm-hmm. prospered quite well as right. a result, and I decided I wanted to give back, so I offer about a a little over a million dollars a year in scholarships, so Mm -hmm. that people can come. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we have art. I was just teaching there two days ago, um, and we had artists and social workers and teachers, Mm. college professors, but also we had a physician, a a doctor who wanted to actually transition out of being Mm. a doctor. We had um, a tech leader uh, who had been in the tech world. We had a lawyer. So it's a real diverse group of people who come together and go through a curriculum that helps them to understand how to repurpose themselves uh, and to sort of reimagine and apply what we call a growth mindset uh, based upon Carol Dweck's work, uh, the professor from Stanford. Mm -hmm. Um, And it helps us to, you know, we've got a night where we measure our satisfaction, customer satisfaction based upon NPS, net promoter score. And we have a 95 NPS. which
1: Impressive.
0: Is the 99th percentile. So something's going right. Um, what
1: is it? What's the heart of it?
0: I think the heart of what's going right is that a lot of people feel alone in midlife, mm. especially men. Uh, women are better at socializing their, ch- you know, when they're challenged, they talk to other people. But um, a lot of men you know, in midlife feel somehow lack of confidence and like they're the only one who's suffering through feeling irrelevant Mm -hmm. and so the idea that you could come to a place and start to realize okay I actually have I've created some mastery and wisdom in my life Mm. let's like it's almost like mining it's like a mining expedition or Mm an archaeology project to understand like for me I listen I had no idea when I joined Airbnb six years ago that the greatest thing I probably offered to the company was my emotional intelligence. I knew I knew something about emotions, but I never really understood in the context of an environment which was full of younger people who hadn't developed their emotional intelligence in work that what I had to offer was valuable.
1: So did Brian know that when he signed you up that no, what he was yeah, going to get was – was. Uh, was you know the the wisdom of of age in terms of how you get people to work together and to be attuned to their needs and interests so that you can align your interests and move forward together or did or did he tap you because of your reputation in the hospitality industry thinking i don't know anything about hospitality I'm running a hospitality company. I better get somebody who can help me with that
0: uh, uh, fully the latter <laughs> okay basically uh I think it's been a revelation for both of us. Actually, I saw Brian today. I was at Airbnb headquarters today, and
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: I was sitting down with, it, and I was just walking to, to. I was going to a meeting, and I saw him and the head of HR globally for the company. And they pulled me aside, and truly, they asked me a, a, a series of questions that related to emotional intelligence mm. in terms of how they could set something up in the company in terms of a new, just uh, some, a some little bit of an organizational structure idea. Um, so I, I guess you know. The truth is one of the things that we're not that aware of is, is the wisdom we've developed over time because mm. you've developed it over time, and it's just like anything. Over time, you don't realize that it's worth something. And so part of what we do at the Modern Elder Academy is help people to see what they've developed over time and how do they articulate it in a way – and maybe even repurpose it in, 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 in a new industry. I have a friend named Mike mm. Riley who is a for 22 years a sports agent for golfers, helping them – Figure out after they finished golfing professionally what they would do next, mm-hmm. um, and signing contracts for them and things like that. When he lost his job a few years ago, he had no idea what was next. He thought his life was all about golf,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know. And ultimately, what he realized is what he was great at was helping people in midlife figure out what's next for them. Mm-hmm. And so he's now the CEO of UC Berkeley's Executive Education Program, mm-hmm. but. It took him a little while to figure out that what he'd learned with golfers could be repurposed in a whole different area.
1: And I can imagine so, how, with being with other people who were going through similar kinds of, you know, uh, exploration and mining expeditions, yeah. uh, even you know, in wildly different fields, uh, that that your your mind would be quite stimulated about like, well, what is it that I know and can bring.
0: I would say half the learning comes from your fellow students, mm-hmm. and maybe the other half from the actual educational work we do in the classroom. Um, so it's it's a it's been quite an experience. I have loved it because it to help people in midlife realize that they've got a lot of life ahead of them. I, I'm 58, and the online longevity sites say that I'm going to live till age 98 based upon my lifestyle and parents and other things. So if I'm going to live till 98 and I'm 58 today, um, I am only halfway through my adult life. Now, that, Stu, is a really interesting way to look at it. If I've got half of my adult life left, knowing that I count that starting at age 18, mm-hmm. um, that's, mm-hmm. uh, when you think that way, you're willing to try something new. There's a word called liminal. Mm-hmm. The word liminal basically means you're in between two things. You're in mm-hmm. limbo. And generally speaking, as we become adults, we don't, want to, we don't want to have that experience. We know we were in limbo and we were liminal when we were in, in puberty as an adolescent. Um, but I think what we're going through sometimes in midlife is middle essence, not adolescence. Mm-hmm. And middle essence is full of hormone changes and all kinds of other transitions that are happening, but we haven't really given it a, a name. And um, so I, you know, I think middle essence is a word that will probably catch on over time.
1: You know, I think that's out there. I, I, we had a, someone on the show about four or five years ago who used a term just like that. I will. Uh, it's it's not fresh on my mind. That's because I have a sixty six year old brain, and one of the things we know, Chip, you know where I'm going with this.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> I you know I am wiser now than I was when I was <laughs> younger, but but my memory is certainly not as sharp as it once was. Uh, let me. Something
0: you don't know that, Stuart. You yeah. it, I love I love the fact you brought that up. It is true. As we get older, yeah. uh, our brain is not as fast as it used to be, nor as good at recall. But the thing that a lot of people don't know about the mature or aging brain is the following. The brain shrinks a little bit with time. Now, it actually, frankly, mo- some brains don't, but, but the average brain does shrink a little bit. And one thing that actually happens over time for the average brain is you start to actually do what's called the left brain, right brain tango you get more adept at being able to go move from linear to creative and back and forth. What that allows for Mm -hmm. in terms of the practical application of it is it means that you're able to get the gist of something and think systemically and holistically more often. Um, So if you're younger, you're really good at diving deep into something. Um, But you're not as good at being able to see the forest for the trees. Whereas somebody who is, uh, who is um, older can actually sort of sort of uh, look at things a little bit more from a holistic perspective sure um, and that 's a really great value in a company, especially a young company, where everybody's fixated on certain things and not seeing the big picture
1: what what i 'd like to now turn to is um I mean, it it sounds like your your academy is a wonderful place for people to go uh, to collectively work through uh, some of the questions of how to see the the future through the lens of a, of a growth mindset, and to really capture the wisdom of of their experience, and and to be able to articulate what value that that is, um, and to be in a supportive environment for doing that. Uh, what wisdom do you have for organizations who are looking to um to capitalize on the the wisdom that sits there let's call it latent you know not really yep. not really used in their in their workforce what's a good first step for people in organizations whether they're CEO of a small business or uh the division head of a of a big company or someone who's maybe just uh on the cusp of middle age what what are the big ideas in terms of how companies can can be more uh, effective at at capitalizing on this sure. growing asset? Oh,
0: here's a few. Here's a few thoughts. Number one is um, try to identify where the wisdom exists. There's a, it's interesting. Um, there are some companies that, in their employee satisfaction survey or work climate survey, mm-hmm. ask the following question:
2: mm-hmm.
0: Other than your boss. Who do you seek out for counsel or wisdom in the company? And that question alone can help you to start identify, identifying where the wisdom exists. And, and what, what those companies have done this have found is it's often older people. And then you start having to ask yourself, well, how can we share that wisdom more broadly? Sometimes it means taking an older employee in a company and giving them the opportunity to be almost a, uh, a cultural ambassador in the company. They may have some institutional wisdom and help them to actually uh, teach new employees how things get done there. Uh, Procter & Gamble has a, had a program called the Master Program for decades, mm-hmm. where people who have been in Procter & Gamble for at least 10 years can become a master. And when they're a master, they're sort of, they, they use you as sort of a wise soul in the company and, mm-hmm. uh, to actually parachute into groups that need some wisdom or, mm-hmm. or, or mm. need some some help, and so that's that's an idea, um, you know. Or why not innovate like Google did? Google gave their engineers 20% time to allocate to new innovate innovative projects. Those those engineers who uh, qu- uh, qualified for that program, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's some people who are older workers who c- can get um, coached into how to be a coach or be trained in mm-hmm. how to be a coach. And they could be an internal coach for people who are growing in the organization. Or what about uh, starting to get smarter about the idea that more and more people don't want to retire at age 65? and if, or Some of them actually – in fact, here's the part that's interesting. Over over 50% of people uh, who are in their 50s say that they would actually like to work past age 65,
2: mm-hmm.
0: like or have to work past
2: mm-hmm. age 65. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So most, most companies at this point almost have a, pr- a perspective that, you know, on Friday you're 100% employee, and then on Monday you're no longer – you're 0%. Why don't we create more opportunities for people to graduate over time uh, and so that maybe, you, you know, at age 65 you move to uh, uh, three days a week instead of five days mm-hmm. a week and then down to two days a week a couple years later so that that institutional wisdom doesn't walk out the door Friday afternoon – um, and it's still there, uh, you know, that people people forget that, you know, older empo- employees are often very loyal. They're not job hoppers, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, they have a, a lot of interest in, uh, especially if they're a long-term employee, in seeing the company that they worked for continue to succeed. Or, sure. And so there's a lot of loyalty. There's a, you know, and, and especially in an economy like we're in right now, where un- the unemployment rate's under 4%, um, you know this is a great way to recruit. Why not recruit people who used to be there and were great workers and and perhaps you don 't want to be retired
1: yeah they and they and they have value to add so on on the other side of the equation what 's your what 's your best advice for someone who 's seeing and perhaps fearing anxious about uh bewildered <laughs> the the terms you used to describe uh, what what you encountered in in your study? Uh, you know, if you're feeling that way, what's a good first step for what one can do to discover more of what their their wisdom is that is relevant and can be of value?
0: You know, I I, th- I think um, first of all, building your own confidence is, is a, a really critical step, and, and uh, trying to get clear. One of the things that one of one of the things we do at the academy that I've seen um used out there in many companies is ask yourself what are the five pieces of advice that you would give to someone a generation or two younger than you um, that is you know work advice work advice that relates to uh, mm-hmm. the workplace and think something you've learned over time and make sure it's unique to your experience you know uh, people can say so it's you know, real just be just be yourself well you know everybody's going to say that that's that's sort of a cliche So what's the specific thing that you can Mm -hmm. say?
1: Your distinctive competence there.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the process of actually asking that question um, allows you to start to get clear on what it is that's proprietary to you and differentiated to Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. that you can offer. And it led me to writing a LinkedIn article uh, that's on my Chip Conley profile Mm -hmm. uh, about the advice I would have given to myself at age 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 – since I'm now 58, um, huh. based upon you know what I wish I had learned at those ages, based upon what I know now.
1: All right. What would you have told your 30-year-old self, Chip?
0: Oh, my God. I, well, I'd have, to, I'd have to pull it up. But I'd say, I'd say, I think I t- would have told my 30-year-old self something around workaholism. Hmm. Um, and because I had started a company four years earlier, and my 30s were very much of a work a workaholic mm-hmm. decade. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember a lot, frankly, of a decade because I was growing a company very quickly, and um, so I think you know I, I have <laughs> for better advice go to my LinkedIn page. All right, <laughs> but I certainly think the idea of how to see life not so much like a, like a balance, like um, like a balancing beam. You know, we talked about work life balance. I see it more as like a teeter totter there's times when you're going to be fully all in mm-hmm. and then there's times when you need to be fully all out as well.
1: Absolutely. And,
0: um I think that the part is this is even more true today with our iPhones and smartphones that you know follow us everywhere is how do you have times when you're just completely doing a Shabbat? You like taking us out you're taking a time yeah. like a detox from mm-hmm. the digital.
1: Yeah, we we talk a lot about that on the show and that's an important uh you know consideration how you restore and rejuvenate yourself when that's what's needed. Um, Chip, we are unfortunately out of time. So uh, please tell us, uh, what's the best place for listeners to find out more about your work uh, and about your book, Wisdom at Work, The Meeking of a Modern Elder?
0: You can find out more about me at chipconley dot com. That's C O N L E Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that website, you'll see information on the book, and you'll also see the Modern Elder Academy website, which is modernelderacademy.org, dot um, org, but it's it's attached to the Chip Conley site. Um, and uh, you, you certainly can go on LinkedIn, and I've written twenty articles uh, on LinkedIn. Some of them have, which have gone out and for mass publication in. Uh, in magazines. And um, yeah, you're welcome to, to look at either of those places.
1: Fantastic. Chip, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom.
0: Stu, I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chip Conley and that it piqued your curiosity about how different generations can learn from each other, how you can teach an old dog new tricks, the value of older employees, and the importance of a growth mindset, of lifelong curiosity and learning. Here's a challenge for you then, an invitation. First, if you are in a position in your organization to find the elders, the potential sources of great wisdom who can help younger people, can you take steps toward pairing them so that there is mutual benefit and that there's a benefit for your organization, for your business? Or if you are nearing the pinnacle of your life and career and you're looking for ways to be generative, to help those coming after you. Which I hope you are. Can you take steps towards finding a new way within your organization, within your profession, to help other people, those coming after you, to mentor them? I've been trying to do a lot of this myself lately, so perhaps I can advise you. Get in touch. Friedman at EDU. Is my email, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.